You are listening to episode 59 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. For episode 59, we're returning to our native British Isles, specifically Wales, for Richard Ayoade's adaptation and directorial debut of Joe Dunthorne's 2008 coming-of-age novel, Submarine. With a mixed cast of relative newcomers, such as Craig Roberts and Yasmin Page, and veterans such as the always brilliant Sally Hawkins, Submarine manages to blend the specific pains and awkwardness of those turbulent teenage years with a caustically funny and adept script in a film that manages to be singular while also riffing on its influences of the British and French New Wave films of the mid-20th century. If that sounds like your thing, then stay tuned as we explore this almost instantaneous modern cult classic of British cinema. So this is the second episode we're doing when we're actually recording from our own places. You're recording your house, I'm recording from my house. Yep. But this is actually going to be the third episode we have recorded remotely in general because not so long ago, this week I believe, we recorded a collab with the great movie podcast, Movies for Days. Jeff Newman himself, the host with the most, and I think our audience is going to dig that episode, Wayne. It is very, very interesting, the film we've chosen. It is a son of a famous director, we won't name who, and, 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 sticking with In Film We Trust, it is very theme-heavy, and I think a lot of our audience is going to appreciate that. It made for a good discussion, made for an interesting discussion, and I think fans of Movies for Days and fans of In Film We Trust will both dig that collaboration that will be on Movies for Days' podcast. It was a very us film. It's the kind of film that I could have seen us doing in a future episode. And thank you very much, Jeff, for having us on. It was an absolute pleasure, mate. But in many ways, this film is also interesting, Wade. And I think some people in... The Twitterverse, the Xverse, whatever you want to call it, has come to expect in film we trust to delve into the horror, into the exploitation, into the genre world. But we're taking a little detour for that way. And I think people can kind of gather, if they look at our catalogue as a whole, that we like to take on a wide diversity of films. For example, we've done many new queer cinema films of the 90s, whether that's Gus Van Sant's films, for example, whether we've delved into the world of Vincent Gallo and Buffalo 66, which made for a great episode, one of our most highly watched clips on YouTube. We have a diversified portfolio, so to speak, and I don't think this film is any different. Well, from the start, we knew we didn't want to stick to just one genre. There are lots of great horror podcasts out there. It mostly seems to be horror that's the one that people hone in on. But for us, we wanted to cover a wide range of films from new and old and from various different genres. So that's that's what we like. We always wanted to do that. We wanted to really diversify our output and try as many different kind of films. Also... We were said at one point, I think, we wanted to do a lot more films which are closer to home. And we are very closer to home. But funnily <laughs> enough, I have never been to Wales. This film is set in Swansea, Wales. I have never been to Wales. But I don't think that really matters. I mean, there is an identifiable British culture there, whether whichever part of the aisle you come from, so to speak. And as a film, this kind of loosely, or quite thoroughly, falls into the coming-of-age film. And one of my 
favourite coming-of-age films, Wayne, the one I've gravitated towards for many, many years is Stand By Me. Now, we live in a somewhat rural area, don't we? And many of the themes, the, the, the scenery of that film, it ties into a lot of the way I grew up, for example, whether that was on train tracks, in my case, disused train tracks. I know Stand By Me very much is about used train tracks. And I had a good friend growing up, and we were always outdoors, we were a very outdoors lifestyle. And I liked that, and I could see that in Stand By Me. And importantly, importantly, what gels with me with Stand By Me, it's this tug. It's this tug between nostalgia and anti-nostalgia. Because it's very, very easy to almost fall into the trap of nostalgia. But Stand By Me in many ways is playing with that trope because it's not necessarily nostalgic, even though on the surface it can seem. It's been called, I've heard, the quintessential coming-of-age movie, and it totally makes sense. When you look at it, the band of young kids, they have this incident in their lives which irrevocably changes them, and it's written from the perspective of a writer in the future looking back on his childhood. And I think that's something all of us can empathise with. We often look back at what we're like when we're younger, the decisions we made, the kind of adventures we went on. That train was real, by the way. Thank you, Rob Reiner, know, for, right. for treating those children so well. I think it was a very formative experience for a lot of them. I think for the young actors, as well as for their characters, I love Stand By Me. I'd say definitely one of the best coming-of-age films. I also really enjoy things like Almost Famous, The Breakfast Club, Older Things Rebel Without a Cause, and then just this year, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Yes. Exploration of kind of adolescent coming of age. It was a young girl. She's from a kind of religiously conflicted background. She's moved to this new city. She's going to this school, new friends. It's like so many of the elements we associate with being young and growing up all kind of thrown together. And it handles its issues very, very well. I love that film. Did God ever listen by any chance? Do do we ever find out if God listens? God was not a character in the film, so I cannot say definitively yes or no whether God was listening. But I have to say, bit of a plug here, I guess, that is a film you should very much check out. It's got great critical reception. I heard there has been some kind of division over its themes, but that just happens nowadays. It seems like any film will cause some kind of division if it has any kind of overarching theme but i would highly recommend seeing that in a time where everyone's still talking about barbenheimer Uh, i think are you there god it's me margaret that's more than worth your time definitely check that out yeah i think the division did some people find it too sweet too sickly could you see could you see that accusation is there a point there I have heard people saying it's kind of too saccharine, but I didn't think so. I think it avoided a lot of the cliche, big dramatic moments, big crying scenes that you associate with that kind of film. I think it handled it very well. Very human characters. That's what's so important about these films. We have to be able to look at these characters and see ourselves in them, specifically our younger selves, or we can't empathise with them, we don't understand their struggles, and the whole film comes off as just being false. But that movie... That did coming of age right. And that ties in with our feature today, Wayne. Submarine, mm. made for a measly 1.5 million, which is actually quite high for a British film in many ways. Yeah, for like a small independent British yeah. film. It's good because nowadays we're talking about big budget movies all the time and films that the, the budget's just ballooned because of these special effects. But when you have these kind of low, these low grade 
simplistic films, a little budget like that is all you need. All you need is story, really. Story is what carries you through. Now, interestingly, this film, one of its producers, its main producer, was Warp Film. Now, Warp Film has a very interesting history because it comes from Warp Records, the subsidiary of Warp Records. Now, Warp Records were a cutting-edge record label in the 1990s. They produced artists and released artists such as Aphex Twin, Boards of Canada, Square Pusher, Flying Lotus. And it wasn't until 2001 that they developed Warp Films. Now, here's a funny little anecdote for you, Wayne. (laughs) Their first foray into the world of filmmaking was by a short film, a short film by Chris Morris. Chris Morris, the famous satirist of films like Four Lions. Now, here's a title for his first short film, and it's a title nobody in this world could ever guess. It (laughs) It is called My Wrongs, number 8245, 8249 and 117. Okay, what the fuck, Chris? <laughs> You've just told me that title and I've forgotten it already. That is pretty that's pretty complicated. Is that like a prisoner number or something? <laughs> see, I have never seen this film. I really want to see it. So in a uh, state of transparency, I'm going to read its little Wikipedia synopsis. Okay, and it ties in because it stars the great Paddy Considine who's in this film. Okay. It says, starring Paddy Constantine as a mentally disturbed man taking care of a friend's Doberman Pinscher named Rothko and voiced by Morris while she is away. The dog talks to him and convinces him that he is on trial for everything he has done wrong in his life and the dog is his lawyer. Okay, Chris, you're <laughs> fucking dead. That sounds like a particularly bad dream, that, doesn't it? <laughs> it's an interesting that. Like, with short films, do you habitually watch short films? Because I have to be honest, I don't. I'm sure they're because they're smaller, possibly more easily digestible than feature films. I think maybe I'd watch them a lot more. Maybe I'm going to go through a phase when I'm going to watch lots of them. But in general, I don't watch very many of them. How about you? See, I'm pretty much the same. I don't think there's many short films I can name, which I know is bad for a you know a burgeoning wannabe cinephile like us. You would you would <laughs> you would think we would know way more, because in a sense, the sh- if, if if to use an analogy, we're talking about war war records, war films. To use an analogy, the short film in many ways is the single. And the mm. feature-length film you would think is the album. And I'm sure more people have listened to singles, it individual of an album before, even though I'm a huge album guy and I do prefer albums. But you would think short films would be a go-to mode of operation when, you know, you could just put something on for 15, 30 minutes, for example. I wonder if people are just assuming because it's smaller, it's not going to be as impactful or as emotionally satisfying. But, you know, you've got like Pixar shorts, which are really good. They're only like five odd minutes long, something like that. So maybe people just prefer like the full picture, like you say, the album rather than the single. Do you have any short films of note that you like? Can you name one? I can't really think of names. No. Like there's probably some ones that would, like if you if you showed me them, I'd kind of remember them. But there's not a lot of names off the top of my head. I mean, it's got its whole own category at the Academy Awards, which I've watched you know regularly for quite a few years, but I still couldn't tell you really any off the top of my head. Now we just bad cinephiles, Wayne. <laughs> Possibly, we, <laughs> we just bad we, li- we like we like our films too long. Is the problem we like our films too long? But independent of short films, okay, Warped Films, their first feature film. Now take a guess of this, Wayne. It's a film we both love, and this is their first feature film. And many could argue that maybe they've never bettered it since. Take a guess of what that first feature film was. Oh, can I not have any clues? <laughs> okay, it is very British, and it stars Paddy Constantine. Oh, is it Dead Man's Shoes? It is Dead Man's Shoes. Oh. It, 
That's a great film, isn't it? I love Dead Man's Shoes. That was unbelievably good film. Just imagine being a production company and that is your first feature film. Yeah, for me, that was one of the most naturalistic films I'd ever seen. It didn't feel like anybody was giving a performance. Everything in that felt so real and so genuine. A genuinely, actually quite scary film. That. A very taut, a very realistic, and a very, in for many people, a very relatable film. The, you know, the angst to the mental disorders, etc., etc. Very great film. But warp films would also... I think they'd also done This Is England with Shade Meadows. So they've been with Shade Meadows pretty much the whole time. Very interesting company. And I think they're still pretty much run independently. And of course, that ties in with this film. They produced Submarine by the great Richard Ayoade, who has only to this date made two films. Yeah, there was this, and then the other one was... It was an adap- adaptation of a Dostoevsky novel, wasn't it? The Double, starring Jesse Eisenberg. Which only came three years afterwards. I wonder if he's kind of dipped his toe into dire- writing and directing feature films, which, you know, from my experience in Submarine, he did a great job at. But it's like he never took the plunge all the way. He did this, then he did that three years ago. Hasn't really done it since. I don't know if it's just commitment problems, he's had too much other things to do, but this, for write- uh, writing and directing debut, this is an incredible effort. Well, Richard Ayoade is quite an interesting character, so to speak, Mm. on the British scene. He was the president of the Cambridge Footlights while at uni. So if we're to parallel, because, you know, 50% (laughs) of our audience are international. Well, the Cambridge Footlights are a sketch comedy troupe at the Cambridge University. Yes, very highfalutin and elite, Wayne. This is is definitely not our world. So it's kind of comparable, I'd say, to, you know, Harvard Lampoon and the Groundlings, for example, in the United Hmm. States. And former members, former past members, include the great Peter Cook, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, David Baddiel. So it's kind of the germination of all these sketch comedy actors, writers that would come become the, a British staple of the 1990s. And here's a little interesting quote, Wayne, a little interesting fact for you, I should say. Okay, the first woman, the first ever woman to be admitted as a full member of the group, the Cambridge Footlights, in 1964. Now, I could give you 10 guesses. I'll give you three, Wayne. I'll give you three. I'm generous. I'm generous, okay? <laughs> Neither, you'll you will be able to guess who this is. Okay, um, Thora Birch. That's one guess. No, <laughs> this is Britain, Wayne. This is Britain. This is Britain. That was a very, very bad guess. That was terrible. I'm t- terrible. I'm back. I'll Absolutely just throw terrible. some random people names. Britt Eklund. No. No, Margaret Thatcher. The first, the first member, the first full member, Jermaine Greer. The Australian feminist, the, f- oh. the famous contrarian and quarter of controversy, <laughs> was a- admitted as a member in 1964. Now, I have no issue with G- Germaine Greer, pro mm. or plus. It's just Germaine Greer. I don't know much about her. But if somebody said to me, first woman to be admitted as a full member, that wouldn't be my first guess or my 10th. Yeah. Or my yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I wouldn't think Jermaine Greer and Footlights, but in the UK, because we do have so many universities, we have a very strong university culture. It makes sense that a lot of these comedy troops, people like the people who made Not the Nine O'clock News, uh, News Fry and Laurie, and the Monty Python group, for example, a lot of them met at university, and that's where their comedy troops first germinated. I believe you said earlier. So they all kind of came together. Uh, they kind of started plying their trade there. And then, yeah, they went on to worldwide success. Well, that's good you mentioned that, because Richard Ayoade, in this country especially, I don't know his reputation internationally, maybe he's more renowned internationally for submarine, but in this country especially... He's very much a regular on panel shows, 8 out of 10 Cats, for example. He hosted Travel Man, mm-hmm. 
which has a different guest on each week, for example, and they would go to a different European international country for a 24 or 14 hour stay and as tourists. He's also renownedly, and this is pertinent to this film, he was a director of music videos, much like David Fincher got his start, and he would direct, and now here's the key one, he would direct a music video or videos by Arctic Monkeys, the Super mm-hmm. Furry Animals, Kasabian, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, and Vampire Weekend. But I, I think, is this a show you like? He was one of the leads of the IT crowd. I haven't seen a lot of it. From what I have seen, I do really enjoy it because it's written and directed by, uh, written and created by one of the creators of Father Ted, which is one of my favourite sitcoms. Right. So it's one of the shows I haven't really watched much. I like someone like Richard Ayoade. I think one reason is you don't hear much about him other than his work. He's not one of those celebrities that's always in it for themselves. He always seems to be like very dedicated to his work and to his craft. And I think being a comedian very much lends itself to this kind of film because it's a dramatic film at its heart, but it's infused with comic elements. And I think a comedic actor, a comedic writer, is better able to weave comedy into a dramatic narrative than, say, a pure dramatist. Well, you've heard actors say that before, that it's easier it's easier to be dramatic than it is to be funny. Do you agree with that sentiment? I, I think it is. I've heard somebody say they were the editor of this comic magazine in the UK, and he says, for 20-odd years, I had a, such an unenviable job. I was trying to make British people laugh. I don't know why specifically British people, but that's the thing is if you're trying too hard to make people laugh, it can come across as very forced and unnatural. So yeah, in a way, I think it's easier maybe to tug at the heartstrings than it is to get people laugh, which is why I think com- uh, comedy is such an admirable profession because it is very difficult when you have to work with changing circumstances and changing you know, like political and social landscapes. The fact that these people are able to make us laugh through all of that is great. And I I think he brings that comic flair because he has a very self-deprecating sense of humour, I think. He brings a lot of that to Submarine. And another self-deprecating writer, and I think importantly for this film, because he'd done several songs for this film, maybe a handful of songs for this film, is Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys, and that's where, mm-hmm. the, ti- that's where the tie-in to the music videos come from. Because he was approached by Adoadi to, at first, do covers of John Cale songs for this mm-hmm. film. Now, famously, John Cale is a, a Welshman, an avant-garde musician. He was also famously a member of the Velvet Underground with Lou Reed, mm-hmm. but... Alex Turner, he said, you know, instead he insisted, look, I'll write original songs for the film. And I think that comes through. One of the music videos Ayoade directed for the Arctic Monkeys was a song called Cornerstone. And it's very simple music video. It's got a stylistic setting reminiscent of Submarine. And I do like one of the lyrics in the song Cornerstone. And I think it almost romanticizes the everyday, much like this film kind of does in a way. And the lyric is, And I elongated my lift home. I let him go the long way around. I smelt your scent on the seatbelt and kept my shortcuts to myself. Now, that is a great <laughs> lyric. We are yearning for somebody. This might be an unrequited love, for example, sitting beside you in the car on your ride home, but you don't tell them the shortcut way. You want to spend more time with them, so you go the long way around. And in many ways, that romanticising of the everyday life is very much what I see in this film. It's certainly more interesting and lyrical than just saying we're taking the scenic route. <laughs> but but with this background in directing music videos, that very much comes through. A lot of this film does have that kind of 
music video back uh, this music video aesthetic to it right. some of the scenes especially the outdoor scenes they're filmed in that kind of way it might be kind of hazy it might be quite romantic yep. which matches the feelings of our lead that totally makes sense and I like the fact that Turner wrote songs specifically for this film because you're not just readapting something you're actually making it purpose built and you're using the songs as a way to kind of bolster the tone of the film and to kind of get us give us an insight into the mind of our protagonist because essentially the songs that are played through the film it's kind of what he's feeling at the time like the kind of his emotional resonances absolutely and i think that's riffing on in many ways this film is influenced by hal ashby's harold and maud and in harold and maud cat stevens the great singer songwriter he wrote original songs for that film and I think that's, I wonder if that's what was one of the influences for Ayoade. But there's several influences I really like in this film. One of them is famously John Schlesinger's film, Billy Liar, about a teenage, it's kind of a mundane teenager who's a fantasist. He's from his bedroom, essentially, and he's fantasizing about these faraway wars where he's the hero. And I, and if people don't know the name John Schlesinger, just a few years later he would go on to win Best Director for Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy, the first X-rated film to win an Oscar. I love Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, it's a great film, but he's a great, interesting director. Now, here's an interesting fact I did not know until researching for this film, Wayne, about John Schlesinger. In 1992, he directed an advertisement for the British Conservative Party. Now, what was the anomaly for this advertisement is... Prior to this, you know, the Conservative Party is always about elitism, the upper crust. Well, John Schlesinger brought it back to the candidate of that time, John Major. They brought it back to his humble roots, kind of celebrated his ordinariness in many ways. And this was an, an, an anomaly within the Conservative Party. And I'm not, you know, this isn't, we're not making a political speech pro against whatever. I just think that's an interesting fact in the John Schlesinger's career. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you have to start somewhere. A lot of directors start in music videos. Maybe you start directing adverts, whatever. But the important thing is you use those kind of influences to shape your, you know, your cinematic landscape. And Ayoade was influenced by French New Wave films yeah. for like the aesthetic of the film. Because let's be honest, this film is presented, or at least the lead character presents himself as a classical kind of romantic figure. <laughs> he's he's the intellectual amongst the plebs kind of thing. The way he dresses, the way he talks, his interests how he kind of waxes lyrical about mundane things. You say, this is a lyrical way of saying we're just taking a long way in a car. But how he puts these into these kind of very philosophical terms. He's talk talking about how you know people are individuals and everyone wants to see themselves as something special. He starts off the movie wondering what would happen if he died. Not just died, if he died and resurrected and was essentially mourned all over the country, all over the world. So he has these strangely kind of high opinions of himself. I know a reviewer who actually uh, reviewed the book described him as full of flaws and full of himself. I can't really think of a better way of describing the lead in this film. I love unperfect and imperfect characters, Wayne. I think they always make the most interesting studies, so to speak. And you could see this in 70s new wave Hollywood cinema. You know, the anti-hero, for example. And I'm not saying Oliver Tate's an anti-hero, <laughs> but he's a more complex character than some other writers or directors may have given the character credence. Because I do like... Look, Oliver Tate is a very pretentious 15-year-old. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can escape that. He has these affectations, for example, where he'll go through a phase of smoking a pipe or listening exclusively to French crooners like Serge Gainsbourg or trying different hats on and his bedroom it's adorned by posters of Woody Allen, Elaine Delon and Le Samurai and 
it's and I think this is speaks to a more truthful teenage self because what is it? teenage years or coming of age films it's self-discovery learning something about yourself because in many films which i think can get it wrong it's everybody's almost in a niche they've already Mm. discovered themselves you have the jock you have the loser you have the xyz but this is almost the trajectory of you're finding yourself within the film you're trying all these different phases literally these different hats on to find who you really are and i think people appreciate that it's the kind of thing that was dealt with in the breakfast club where you have all these cliques you have the jock and then you have the nerd and then you have the rebel etc but how they're all human beings and they all have these human elements and it's interesting you said anti-hero because this story is told from the point of view of our lead oliver tate who kind of casts himself as the anti-hero in its own story because (laughs) because this film is narrated by oliver he's kind of telling us the story telling us his feelings now I've had a bit of a rocky relationship with film narration, I think I've mentioned before. For me, it can be a difficult thing to get right. Ayoade definitely thought that, because him and John Dunthorne, who wrote the novel, they watched films like Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, a few Woody Allen films, I think probably especially Manhattan, Mm -hmm. to work on the voiceover, because they were worried that the narration would come across as, as they said it, clunky and lazy. (laughs) I like the narration in this film, I think partly because it's very funny. Second of all, because it gives us this great insight into his mind. It's not just telling us what we already know. It's not just describing the events on scene like the worst narration does. What did you think of the narration in this film? You're right, narration could be clunky, but in this film it absolutely fitted because part of this character, or part of, let's let's just generalise, part of the teenage experience is narcissism. Hmm. And it's the self-aggrandizing of your own life where every tr- trial and tribulation is sacked them out to World War Three. Everything is heightened when you're a teenager. Everything has the utmost importance. I think in many ways that's what this film is dealing with because I would say Oliver Tate is a very narcissistic character and I don't think it's shying away from that. But narration in general, yeah, yeah, it works tremendously well in tr- Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, one of my favourite films of all time, it works well. Mm. Now, Scorsese after that would make Casino. <laughs> and I do like Casino. I'm not putting Casino down. But in that film... I think 90% of it is fucking narration. Now, films can have trouble with narration. Famously, Blade Runner, remember? Harrison Ford hated the narration of that so much, he apparently delivered it so flat that they had to remove the narration from the film. Yeah, he wasn't a fan of that thing overall, especially the uh, the twist at the end. Well, not the pit twist, it's more of a fan theory, which has been more or less confirmed by Ridley Scott, but he hated that. But... It's a difficult thing to get right, but painting Oliver as this kind of anti-hero, it's absolutely true, because when we look at him, he's far from a perfect character. He's this supposed to be this regular kid who goes to high school, but you know he's peer pressured into doing bad things. He picks on this kid, Zoe. It doesn't feel like it's out of maliciousness. It feels like he's pushed to do it. That ends badly. We are actually told his first kiss was with this girl, Zoe, yep. but he did it. He insisted on doing it round the back of the school. Now, what's the only reason he would do that? So people didn't want to see him. So this movie is under no illusions that this character is some kind of ideal it's not trying to paint him as better than other people it's trying to paint him as a typically flawed character he is very flawed and and i'd maybe counter where you said it's about peer pressure i don't know i think in many ways with teenagers it's it's about impressing and we know in this film he's trying to impress jordana and who he himself calls a moderate bully or (laughs) or enjoys moderate amounts of bullying so i 
I would counter that to a point, to a point. Of course, it's peer pressure, and he's not overall a bad guy. There is remorse when he's horrible to Zoe, for example. But as he himself says, Zoe's the weakling, and there's always, for whatever reason, that one person who is semi-acceptable to shit on. Yeah, like the unpopular kid in school, the one that's allowed to be picked on, the one that you would end up feeling the most sorry for. She's not in the movie very much, but he's out to do this to essentially impress his friends. He's got those kind of friends who he doesn't even really like. There's a character in this called Chip, (laughs) who's one of, we'll say, one of Oliver's friends for the sake of argument. He's what I would describe as being like comically abrasive. He's kind of a douche. He kind of thinks of a lot of himself, but I like how he's presented as that character, but he's not annoying. He's not a grating presence. You like seeing him because it it kind of shows this interesting counterpoint to Oliver. He's kind of a douche, but it's like he's more out front with it. He doesn't have any kind of pretense, unlike Oliver. <laughs> well, Ch- Chip Chip seems an exclusively almost British character. Yeah, he does. I, yeah. I can't see him in an American high school film. And look, I really like when he's on screen. I don't condone his behaviour. He is a bit of a dick, but he kind of seems like the bully who would be bullied himself. He's quite weak. He's quite skinny. He's quite unthreatening physically. And I think, look, it's like at one point Oliver tries to kick him in retaliation and Chip just grabs Oliver's leg and says, what the fuck are you doing? He, he doesn't do anything else. I mean, if you if anybody gives Chip a bit of resistance, he'd back down for it. Yeah, I think Chip is the kind of character, remember when we covered Scum, he's the kind of guy who, unchecked, would probably go on to end up in a borstal <laughs> if this had been, you know, back in the 1970s. I don't think but, it'd be Ray Winston in that film, though. No, I don't so. <laughs> but he's one of those realistic characters, the kind of person we can imagine encountering. A lot of the characters are like this. I mean, a lot of the other school kids don't get a lot of screen time, but like Jordana Bevan, who is yeah. the love interest of the lead, how yeah. he kind of... He is a romantic man. He kind of a romantic boy. He does really romanticize about her. He states all these characteristics, like he says. He's she enjoys like moderate bullying, <laughs> which is a which is a weird thing to say. And mm-hmm. what I liked so much about Jordana's character actually is remember when we talked about Adventureland? Yep, yep. And you had M, who was Kristen Stewart's character. I like how she felt like a real person. She wasn't just this idealized love interest. She had her own problems. She had her own personality quirks. She had her own things to deal with. And she's in this film, not just as the love interest, she's there as another individual who the lead essentially falls in love with, or at least he kind of thinks he does. Well, Jordan's an interesting character, but, and you mentioned before, I think, the look of this film. Well, prior to Jordana, as a couple, for example, Oliver's world is very bleak, it's very introverted like him, it's very expressionless in many ways, even though he's got he's surrounded by all this great art and he may be using his typewriter, but there's very little passion, so to speak. And I think Jordana wearing that red coat, and she is colour palette with a red coat at all times, and I think that represents the passion, and it's symbolic for what Oliver lacks in his own life. And the colour palette of this film is very dreary, it is very grey, it is very Oliver in many regards, and Jordana mm. is the antithesis of that, and I think she plays it tremendously well. She's a very caustic character, a very sardonic character. She herself, I mean, both of our lead interests are not especially likable at all times, yet they remain to be essentially likable. They have that thing, like, in the lead characters from Ghost World, where it's the kind of but there in there that the abrasiveness was kind of turned up here they're more kind of dialed down but it is the kind of conversations you'd have with kids in school and like right. you say about the look of this film i love the way the movie is filmed a lot of it feels like a home movie like the kind of 
French New Wave films where just like somebody with a camera, we have a lot of handheld shots. Yep. Occasionally, we have quite grainy quality. It feels just like a documentary someone's making. Oliver even says at one point in his narration, he says, sometimes I wish there was a camera crew following my every move. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, there kind of is. He's almost even dictating it. He says at one point, in my life, if I was making a film, all I could afford was a zoom out. What happens then? The camera literally zooms out. So it's like how he's kind of dictating this story as well as being the kind of central person in it. Well, Wayne, this is what I'm saying. He is the narcissist, the self-aggrandizer. This is what it's all about. It's the internal teenage struggle of oneself. Mm. And you mentioned French New Wave, and I think this film is... Uh, visually stealing a lot so to speak from the (laughs) French New Wave the way certain scenes are cut the quick cuts it's very reminiscent of Godard for example now one could easily and lazily and I'll be lazy for this moment right (laughs) could say it looks quite Wes Anderson like hmm okay it's interesting you say that because Wes is known for having an extremely distinctive look. I think someone once said about Wes Anderson films, it feels like each movie is like its own playset, right? Like it's a, like it's his own personal dollhouse, and that's actually a sentiment I believe Wes Anderson pretty much concurs with. Well, it's like a dollhouse. Yeah, it's like his own little dollhouse, like the way everything moves. Like everyone is just like kind of like yeah. a little playing piece. Kind of makes sense. Like it's kind of shut off from the outside world, their, their own insular world. I can see that. but And Wes Anderson himself, in many ways, is riffing on French New Wave. It's kind of the style that keeps on influence in many regards. I know Richard Ayoade, for example, is a huge French New Wave guy. I know in this film it's referenced that his... Um, that Oliver's parents are going to see an Eric Romer film, or were until their fucking next door neighbor, the ninjas, appear. <laughs> <laughs> can I just say, can I just say, okay, Paddy Constantine as the next door neighbor, Graham, the mystic, Wayne, the mystic, mm-hmm. the seer of light, the bringer of light. I can't get over how Oliver just refers to him as the ninja. Mm-hmm. That cracked me up every single time I heard it. It did. Well, the kind of way he acts, like at one point he's making out with his girlfriend and then he starts doing like this kind of punching combination. Yep. He's a great injection. I like how he's got this weird kind of injection of life because all of his parents, they're portrayed as being quite... Dis- the mother's like dissatisfied and quite apathetic. The father, we found out, has some like like some kind of depression basically he's very under motivated even the way he dresses we see the parents are very kind of dressed down very dowdy exactly not much colorism and then you have this guy next door graham the guy who says i didn't ask for this gift it's a burden to me (laughs) he's this kind of mystic he's the kind of guy the kind of let's be honest here this huckster who gives these motivational speeches which sound cool because they're delivered by someone very charismatic but they're essentially meaningless because with this character we have a person who is everything that mrs tate knows her husband is not he's very confident he's very hip he's very outgoing hip he feels like a kind of yeah he feels like kind of a new age self-help guru almost but he dresses like he's in a rock and roll tribute band he has got a full-on 80s mullet with leather pants (laughs) that is never a good look it never was and it never is never will be i am sorry if that offended anybody that's (laughs) that's a look nobody should go for but as you said the history of graham played by paddy constantine as is it was Oliver's mother's first serious boyfriend when she was 18. And mm-hmm. the house that Oliver and his parents live in was handed down by Oliver's mother's grandmother. Mm-hmm. Oliver's grandmother, wasn't it? Yes. And it was the house where Graham and Jill Tate, Oliver's mother, would have all their all their own form of experiences. And now we have poor old Lloyd, the father. 
and he's yeah. very he's a marine biologist he once hosted an open university show called the mysteries of the deep but mm. as oliver states in his narration he was an uneasy presence on camera <laughs> now can i say about lloyd tate the father and it's it's in the book it's not stated in this but in the film it is stated that he has depression in the mm. book i thought this was a great line it says Depression comes in bouts. Like boxing, my dad is in the blue corner. <laughs> That's a great description. <laughs> it is a good description. And using blue, yeah, the great connotation yeah. there. Yeah, he's portrayed as a very kind of downbeat, very just kind of sad guy, like a guy who's used up all of his energy. He's just kind of burned out. He obviously doesn't like his job very much. He has trouble communicating with his son. I think the mother does as well. I think it's trying to show this kind of generational divide. You know how nothing can be cool if your parents did it? Or if you think someone's cool, it turns out your parents did it. It's not cool anymore. It's just pathetic now. It is. It's like, oh, it's God, an I'm, embarrassment. Turning into, I'm, I'm turning into my mum and dad. <laughs> the way they dress, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they have such a problem communicating with them. I like how that's portrayed. It's obviously a loving relationship. Oliver can't really understand it either. The Lloyd even says it feels like being underwater. That's a very common theme in this, this idea of being underwater. He even says that's why he thinks he became a marine, marine biologist, because he feels like he's underwater all the time. I did love the visuals when he was telling Oliver that, and in their kitchen they have a aquarium tank, and mm. they are literally under the shot, under the aquarium tank in the shot, and I thought that was a little nice visual storytelling there, a little symbolism. I thought that mm. worked really well, and this film has a great look. I love the look of this film. What do you think? What do you think? We've discussed the colour palette, but what do you think of the overall look of the film? I like it. I think it's a very warm that kind of home movie feel, I feel. It's yeah. not it's not hyped up, it's not big and it's not flashy. It's got its quirks. Usually when they go down to the waterside, when the characters are on the beach, it's kind of filmed kind of like a music video. You see the the sun and the light reflecting off the water. But it is presented in a very nice way. One and a half million pounds, you said, so yeah. obviously they didn't have a lot to play with. But I did like the look of it. I did like how it felt realistic, it felt authentic. It felt like a genuine kind of movie that you would maybe make with friends when you were that age. Like, make films just about your own life, which is basically what Oliver is doing. Do you think there's an overarching theme in this film that if Oliver doesn't pursue Jordana, who is caustic, passionate, off the cuff, that in many ways he could end up like his father Lloyd, passionless and almost dead inside. Do you think that's what he's there for? Is he the visual representation of what Oliver may turn out to be if he doesn't follow his own passion? I think so. It's it's almost the, you know, don't be like Mies and try to do something different because Oliver feels like he's always trying to do something new and something different. You talk before about how bad films put characters into niches yeah. and they never escape from that. But Oliver is a character who feels like he's always trying to do something different. He's trying to learn about this. He's got a girlfriend, so he's doing this. They're becoming more intimate now. They're becoming more serious in the relationship. At one point, he gives Jordana a few books, personal favourites of his own. And he's talking <laughs> about how this is far superior. It was like it's King Lear. He said, this is much better than Hamlet. And then he gives her Catcher in the Rye, which was a book Iowade was actually fascinated about in his youth. Oh, he, even started, he even started dressing like Holden Caulfield. And let's not forget, what is Catcher in the Rye about? It's about teenage disappointment disillusionment right. so it's thematically on point for this film i don't think she was very impressed i don't think she was impressed by katra and the rise richard Iwadi was <laughs> a lot of the film here she is portrayed as not being that impressed it's like they're in a relationship kind of but it's almost kind of a reluctant relationship like she doesn't really say that much to other people about it i guess he's just happy because 
he's finally got a girlfriend. He talks about how it will bump up his already quite significantly yeah. high street cred. <laughs> Where did he get the rest of that street cred exactly? I don't know. It definitely wasn't from Chip. No, no not from Chip. I think Chip would have knocked it down a few But one, There's this overarching theme in this film. We start this film with the sound of waves, waves crashing. And it also ends this film with waves crashing. Now, what could this mean? This has several connotations, I suppose. Waves in a film can be used for, you know, sexual intercourse when? Mm-hmm, yeah. It can also could represent the the turmoil of your teenage years, the crashing, so to speak. And I think Oliver's search for something, something in Jordana, when he takes her home, when he makes his parents go out to the cinema, or they're going out to the cinema, and he tells Jordana he's got a free home. And, you know, it's the quintessential, in uh, an American pie, this would be played <laughs> for, this would be played to the guild as, you know, some epic loss of virginity (laughs) and for oliver he gets a bouquet of flowers he Mm -hmm. essentially blindfolds her takes her to the bedroom lies across the bed in a very burt reynolds circa 1970s pose (laughs) which when she opens her eyes she says oh dear god it's a serial killer then leaves yeah he is he has absolutely 100 percent overdone it but i like that because it's showing these mistakes that we make in life because he wants to sleep with her for the first time he wants to lose his virginity and he completely overdoes it it's his parents bed that he's decorated i know there's champagne there's balloons he's got this dessert i think it's like a shrimp cocktail downstairs he com- he dresses up in a bloody suit and a tie and the dad's like do you usually relax around the house wearing stuff like that so i like it's that, it's that kind of realistically he's a realistically flawed character he does stupid things like this he tries to present himself as being very clever having these street smarts but generally he's not actually that worldwide can we say that oliver is a little too invested in his own parents sex life i think he is he even checks the uh, the dimmer switch the dimmer he knows if they've been you know making love so to speak if the dimmer is half on and if it's yeah. fully on you know they're probably reading the book yeah, I mean, even... I love that little bit of detail, though. That is just great visual storytelling. It's a great way to visually express something and to tell a story by showing rather than just simply stating it. And that, that might seem like a weird thing to say, who he's obsessed with his parents' sex life. The thing is, it's presented in a way that does portray him as a very sympathetic character because he's doing it for their benefit because he hears how his parents are not getting on very well he eavesdrops on the conversations he listens to their phone calls but it feels like he's coming from a good place he doesn't want his parents to split up he doesn't want this kind of turmoil in his life and he's doing it for good reasons he's trying to help them it pretty much fails at every stage it's very i don't think he does (laughs) he doesn't do that much which actually helps i mean at one point he breaks into graham's house next door i did like how he put that black makeup on you know just in case like anyone that made tried, a difference like anyone tried to identify him but he feels like his heart is in the right place but jill tate his parent it his mother is played by the great sally hawkins of the great mm. film happy go lucky and famously international in del toro's the shape of war now she mm. is always a reliable character actor she always brings it always brings it she's terrific in this film what do you think mm. of the parents even his dad i thought was played tremendously and it was the same actor who was in almost famous as well a film you mentioned pre- 
before. Yeah, they're very on point, the parents. I like how they're quite similar, but they're also quite juxtaposed as well. It feels like the mum is trying, they're both stuck in this rut. The mum is trying to do more. She wants to go out and she wants to meet more people. Lloyd feels a lot more stuck in his ways. I mean, Sally Hawkins, great actor. I once said, I think I watched the film, I think it was Maud, where she played this real life painter. I said, I said, Sally Hawkins could play a character that steals money from the blind and <laughs> still have all the charm in the world. She really does. She's very. She's very downplayed in this. The father's very downplayed. It feels kind of what you look at your parents, you think your parents are uncool. Yep. They just sit around watching the telly all of the time. So watching them, watching their kind of interplay is great because it feels like they want to have an argument, but it's like they can't even be bothered to do that. It's just like little snipes at each other. We should say the father, Lloyd Tate, is played by the terrific Noah Taylor. Mm-hmm. It was a great performance as well. Is kind of this... What would you say? He's he's a pill popper. That's where <laughs> Oliver gets them all them blue pills, which I'm assuming is supposed to be Valium, as they're blue. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think of him? He's quite a sympathetic, sympathetic character. Would you almost say he borders on being pathetic? Because Jill Tate is in this quasi-affair with Graham, the mystic next door, and he kind of accepts it. Do you think that's just because he's supposed to be so depressed to the point that he no longer cares? Yeah, he's almost slipped into this state of apathy. Or he knows he's nothing without her, and if he was to kick up a fuss and remove her, he'd have nothing. Yeah, he's almost just kind of gone along with everything because at one point they're watching telly and Jill says, oh, look at her hair, it's really nice, long. Oh, you know, my hair's short now, do you prefer it long? He never gives a definitive answer. He says, yes, I prefer it long or short. It's always just, oh, whatever you want. It's like there is there is no mental stimulation whatsoever. It's almost like he has no point of view, no opinion. He He is playing second fiddle to everything. And I think that is quite a... can be a true representation of depression i think it's played quite well the apathy for example and i think that's what it's trying to state. it's showing us he is pretty apathetic of life i don't think it's turned out how he wanted you know this is the guy mate this is the guy who hosted mysteries of the deep (laughs) (laughs) exactly but he's at this point in his life he can't even be bothered to have any kind of proper conversation he certainly can't be bothered with an argument he's just kind of floating through life it's you know when they say there's more to living than being alive. It feels like this guy is just living. He's not He's not actually alive. He's in a job he obviously doesn't care that much about. He has trouble communicating with his wife, who's sort of presumably having an affair with a next-door neighbour. Can't yeah. really communicate with the son. It's very awkward. He says, when he goes into Oliver's room, he says, Canock, Canock, coming in. I guess they are supposed to feel so out of touch. It's meant to make us look at our own parents and think, yeah, they're very, very different from us. Or was it just the ultimate bad dad joke? <laughs> I think it was a pretty bad dad joke. The thing, thing is, he does have his exuberant moments. He's talking to Oliver about, he's talking about the young love. You have a girlfriend now. He says, you know, I once ripped my vest off in front of a lady and it worked quite well. Maybe you should try that. <laughs> hey, I, think yeah. maybe he, I think maybe he shouldn't. And he did give Oliver, to be fair, that mixtape with all those Alex Turner songs on. <laughs> which is which is good, because I liked how the songs worked in that aspect, because he gives him this tape and, you know, here's the songs for romance, but he also gives songs for breakup as well, yeah. which is very forward-thinking of him, and how the songs 
aped those feelings he was going through at the time. Because when we see Oliver and Jordana together, the music kind of perfectly captures the feeling of the time there. Sometimes quite melancholic. A lot of the songs aren't massively upbeat, but they're very pure, they're very simplistic. Kind of like the love kind of in the film is. There's this great quote I like. It's, the ignorance of the first love is believing it'll last forever, which seems relevant. The idea you get this first girlfriend and you think this is going to be it forever. You break up with her. It seems like the worst thing ever because you've not really been through your life. You've not had that many experiences. It hits all out of proportion. Well, one of Lloyd's kind of prescient moments in this film Oliver's father is and this kind of plays into that theory that some hold is depression really just somebody being hyper aware of the realistic nature in life because there is this statement within this film and Oliver says to his mother who would you save if the house was burning and she says of course I'd save you I'd feel sorry for your father but I would save you when he asks the same question to his dad and his dad said I'd save your mother that way we'd have a better way of saving you and that is kind of summing it up. He's hyper aware. He's hyper realistic, Lloyd. He knows he's kind of failed in a, in a certain aspect. He's become what he didn't want to become. His wife's having an affair with a mystic. He's just <laughs> he's telling kids about sturgeons now. His mysteries of the deep failed, and he's became this pill popping, unhappy guy in the suburbs. And he's looking at his son, who's you know he's in the blossom of youth, and it's like he can't even really communicate. Neither of them can really communicate at one point there's a kind of reconciliation between the parents even then the chat they have with Oliver it's kind of awkward it's kind of stilted because they're not really able to get through it very well but I like how Lloyd when Oliver asks that question about the burning house Lloyd asks very quickly it's almost like a question he's had in the back of his mind his whole life I think it is I think it is I think Oliver is a very thinking person and I think that's to his detriment He's almost introverted to the point of neurosis. And I think that's why Jordana is such a breath of fresh air for him. She's representative of passion, hence the red coat all the time. Mm. And because Oliver can't handle reality, there is a point in this film when Jordana says to Oliver that her mother has brain a brain tumor. Mm. And Oliver's almost calculating it if he can handle it or not. And we quickly realise Oliver can't handle this. He can handle the romanticization of the relationship, you know, loses virginity to Jordana, you know, they hold hands. In the film's words, nobody'll nobody'll no longer think he's gay. <laughs> so he's he has this romanticized aspect of what Jordana is, but when the reality of her comes in, it changes things very much. Because after a point when she reveals her mother as a brain tumor. He gives her a box of her favorite matches because she smokes. And she says, the burning of this match reminds me of a falling tear. It's the same shape. And Oliver in narration states, I knew this is where it went wrong. She's gone too gooey. Now she's just going to, you know, she's become too sentimental. This isn't the ideal he once had had of her because he can't deal in realistic terms and in many ways i think that's why this harkens back to that john schlesinger film billy liar the self-aggrandizing the self-mythologizing the fantasy this and this is what a, a theme of this film is i think it's reconciling the fantasy with the reality of a situation because he obviously didn't factor this in he thought everything was going to be happy and hunky-dory but he finds this it's like this sudden crashing of reality 
into his fantasy world and the way he deals with it, the way he processes it, it's kind of very mechanical. Like, this wasn't meant to happen. Need to get rid of this. She wants him to go around for Christmas dinner, which ends up being supremely awkward. After that, he's like, I need to get out. Like, it's some kind of contract he's stuck into. She wants him to come to the hospital to visit. He's like, oh, I have Christmas shopping. <laughs> so it's it's almost like his actual human emotions, his empathy as a human being has gone because things are not going the way it works. It doesn't help that his friends at school were saying things to him like, this is not what you signed up for. <laughs> Again, it's not a contract. What are they even talking about? I mean, yeah. that doesn't help. I mean, Chip is a total douchebag, so of course he doesn't help. Nobody but should get advice from Chip ever. Yeah, but Just it's don't get advice from Chip. It's like this injection of real-world consequences in what's meant to be a fantasy land. And this feels, at this point in the film, like that's his reality kind of shattered. Like he's been trying to build himself up all this time, but at this point, reality's come crashing down and he really can't handle it. Do you know what's funny, right? And it's got a weird tie-in with our film last time, The Brood. Do you Mm -hmm. know how this film ties in with The Brood? Now, here's the funny thing with the brood, right? Them little kids in the brood, the little bodies, so to speak, the little children. Well, they were influenced by Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, this mysterious hmm. person in the red cloaked hood. Well, in this film, as ever the fantasist, Oliver always pictures this scene where he's going to rush to Jordana, and when she turns round in her red hood, it will actually be a different person, which happens in Don't Look Now. And I just thought that was a weird little tie in. It's almost like we've inadvertently chosen a double feature (laughs) (laughs) it's bizarre and i was actually starting to look this up because i thought he thinks maybe he'll be with jordana forever it doesn't work out you know as you get with young romances i was looking this up how how often do childhood the whole childhood sweethearts actually work well i checked out the institute for family studies concluded that if you get married at 25 rather than 20 the likelihood of divorce decreases by half. And I was think, I was thinking, what is this film saying by this relationship not working out? I'm thinking, if they got together at that age, and then in ten years' time, you develop, you mature, right. you'd become different people. Maybe you'd no longer be compatible. This relationship has been great for him, but it also feels like the breakup is good for him too. This is an opportunity for him to learn, for him to reassess. I think he does learn from this situation and he'll realise in the future because he says, when I'm 38, this won't matter. Then he storms into his parents' bedroom while the uh, the light is dimmed by yeah, the yeah, way. Yeah, so everybody's getting a happy ending. <laughs> for, those, for those paying attention. And he says, maybe it will matter when I'm 38. So maybe he will look back on this and he'll think, I should have done this, I should have done this. That is compliment to his character he has actually learned something from this situation do you know why Mm -hmm. it's a coming of age film wayne exactly we are on a road to (laughs) self-discovery and and it kind of is weird you know a lot of things what do happen in your teenage years they do matter you know 20 years later down the line for example and as you said it's a big part of this film is will this matter when i reach adulthood for example or is this juice you know flights of fancy when you're 15 years old and mm-hmm. i don't know maybe i can't hypothesize them <laughs> i'm willing to bet they probably won't be together when they're 38 but that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't matter no, exactly. And when they got, and when he goes to her later on, he says to John, "Can we get back together?" Very sensibly, she says, "No." I think a lesser film would have put them back together and said, "You know, it's a happy ending or whatever." But for me, it's like the ending of *The Graduate*, when he goes to the wedding and he takes her away from it, and they're driving away on the bus, big smiles, but then the smiles fade because mm. they made this impulsive decision. They realize they've made a massive mistake. But in this, he realises he's made the mistake and he's trying to learn from it. He's trying to become a better person because of it. And the film does have a kind of ambiguous ending. Not bleak. I, I love it. Yeah. 
I, th- I enjoy it as well. Like they go to the like the edge of the water and they're stood there, and then the film ends. Very much like the spectacular. Now I love that ending because it lets us think what happens next. Unlike they'll get back together, will they stay friends? Where will they go in the future? Wayne, can I just say mm-hmm. that was a terrible build up to the climax. The ending is <laughs> the ending of this film is very well done. They don't just merely stand in the waters. He goes to the beach. He meets her at the beach. She's standing in the waters. She's in her Wellingtons. He's in his stuffy duffel coat with a pair of school shoes on. And she tests him. It's almost a test of character, Wayne. <laughs> she takes a step forward. She's in her wellies. It's not going to make a difference to her. She goes into the shoreline. He takes a step forward. Okay, it's not quite bad yet. It's only maybe half an inch. She takes another step forward. She's getting deeper. Okay, she's testing him even further. Do you want this? Do you not? He takes another step forward. Now his shoes are, you know, they're getting a bit damp. They're getting a bit damp, (laughs) Wayne. She takes another step forward. He takes a step forward. He's drenched. There's no way back. He's ankle deep. And this is indicative of what this film is about. It's about testing waters. It's about, do you really want what you're after? And in this case, at least in this moment of time, we don't know about 38 years old Wayne, but in this moment in time, he is on board. He realises what he lost when he lost her for being self-involved and not going to visit her at the hospital when her mother had a brain tumour. But now he's realised his mistake and he's going into the deep with her, so to speak. And that's what it's indicative of. And something about this film I thought was trying to say also that because we have all these interesting individuals who are all very different, it's kind of showing how we're all weird in our own way. Because the way Oliver acts, that's not strange to him. That's just him normally. It's this behaviour that might be normal to some people is just bizarre to other people because everyone acts differently. Everyone behaves differently. We all have different thoughts and different opinions and different interests. But it's kind of seeing past that and seeing the human side. And when he was going out with Jordana, everything seemed hunky-dory, all seemed good. Then this tragedy happened, and it kind of flipped his perception. I think that's very important. His perception changed. He was quite naive in his own way, even though he acted like he was very intelligent and very erudite and very world-wise. But he wasn't really. He didn't know very much, but he's willing to learn from the experience, and that's what makes him such a relatable character. I I think he's a great character. I love Jordan as a character as well. And we've mentioned in this podcast episode about Oliver, you know, having these flights of pretension. Could you say, I think some have said that this film can veer into pretension itself. We have chapters, mm-hmm. but I, I, we have chapters, we have the stylistic approach of, you know, certain French new wave techniques such as quick cuts, for example, obviously riffing on... Jean-Luc Godard, but I don't think it's pretentious. I don't think this is pretentious at all. I think it's a very sympathetic portrayal of teenage years in a realistic way that isn't captured in, you know, just a mere sex comedy, which this could be derided as, but it's not. No, it's a very simplistic, very down-to-earth film. I don't see it pretentious. I actually think the chaptering thing is quite funny because we talk about having this very nice melancholic score. What happens between the chapters? This sudden dramatic stinger. It's like, da-da-da-da, Jordana Bevan. And it's like into the next section. I, I, I love that musical choice because we have to mention the score is actually by Andrew Hewitt. The original songs are just by Alex Turner. But every mm-hmm. time there's a new chapter in this film introduced, it is almost like a horror soundtrack. We have these large crowds crashing brass instruments 
Yeah, and the t- and the score itself, it's kind of maybe describe it as kind of whimsical. It's almost like the kind of thing you'd hear in Swan Lake or the Nutcracker. <laughs> Sometimes there's just absolute dead silences where you're left to process what's going on. Yep. It's an interesting mix of kind of like pop and classical. And the songs fit very well. The score fits very well. It can be funny at times, which I think was the intention. It just suits the mood and creates this aesthetic so perfectly. Now, can I just say to you in the the weirdest terms what is going to come up in this episode and did you ever envision in this film the on the tv there would be a soap star actor from america and the guy playing that part would be ben stiller that was extremely <laughs> random when i was doing research for this film it was like uh, it was like ben stiller presents submarine because was he not like one of the executive producers he was an executive producer yeah and he has a cameo role as what like american soap star and he appears like it's like a couple of seconds he's on screen I'm like, do you know why oh, that is it's because he's because of his executive producing the film. Yeah, no, I think it's an attempt to try and break into the American market because the American distributor for this film was the Weinstein Company. Oh yeah, yep. interesting. Interesting you mentioned yep. that. Fuck you, Harvey. About the American <laughs> distribution of this, uh, John Dunthorne, author of the novel Submarine, they said when this was film was being shown over the pond. Yeah, I kind of have to make concessions. The same thing happened with train spotting because they were worried they wouldn't understand the lingo, the slang. He said they had to put title cards before the film. And one of them said, he said, Dear Americans, I am Oliver Tate. I come from a country called Wales, which is near England. You may have heard of famous Welsh people like Catherine Zeta-Jones and Anthony Hopkins. You have never invaded Wales, and for that, we are thankful. It's polite <laughs> and informative. That was on Harvey's behest that they had to put that on the cinema screenings. <laughs> and funnily enough, like somebody said to Richard Ayoade, he's like, do you like that? And Richard Ayoade was like, well, I wrote it. I wasn't told yeah. what to write, but, you know, it is what it is. Harvey, it's in, yeah, it's, it's, in the, it's in the sense of humour of the film. It's in the yeah. film's sensibility. It's not just a stock opening card. This feels like something that Oliver Tate would have said in one of his many musings. And who knows, maybe that cameo by Ben Stiller, maybe that involvement in the production side of it had something, because it did make $4.6 million off a $1.5 million budget. So it actually did end up being profitable. Yeah, it quadrupled its budget, so... That's good. I mean, it's good that it reached an audience. It's not obviously not that well a made film because it's this small independent film, but I mean, as a directorial. Wait, what debut- do you mean? No, no. <laughs> I think this is a tremendously well made film. What do you mean, not well made? Oh, no, 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 no. Very, very well-made film. You, Sorry, I mean, you idiot, you uh, idiot. Not well-known is what I meant to say. Yes. So, yeah, not too well-known, but it's go. a tremendously made film. Considering this is Ayoade's directorial debut, it's unbelievable. It is a shame he hasn't done more, because I would be very willing to see him adapt maybe more novels like this. This kind of subject matter, it very much seems like it's in his wheelhouse. It fits his forte, and I think it fits his sensibility. And I think we're all itching for another Ayoade film, and I can't see why that's never happened. I, I don't know if the the double maybe never made so much money back i know a lot of people like that film also i've never seen it but i i i'm i'm itching for another ayoade film and i hope we get one one day i think maybe he's trying to work on other projects he's had other commitments but seriously if he makes another film if i find out he's making another film i'm gonna be all over it yep because this is a new watch for you i think this was a third third time watch for me Mm. and i like introducing these films to you wayne for example as you've introduced to me certain films and what did you think i want you to have the one of the last words on this episode (laughs) as somebody who's come to it relatively new well even though coming of age is a very well-worn genre we've had very many examples over the years both good and bad this is one of those little hidden gems it's written very well 
the comedy works, the dramatic elements work because they're treated seriously like the cancer diagnosis, the brain tumor, that's not laughed off. It's treated as serious. We see the like the effects on the family that it has. Uh, the romance works very well. It's not one-sided. The characters do learn a lot. There's just a lot to it. I feel this is the kind of film that the more you watch it, the more you'll see, the more you'll pick up on. You'll pick up more on Oliver's pretensions, the way he acts, the way he talks, the way that the story is paced, the way it's set out. It's just a very interesting film. I can see maybe some people think it's, I don't know, too quirky. I hate when people use that term. Ridiculous. It's not, but it's not pretentious. I've got no idea where that came from. Just because it looks, you know, it has a certain look to it. But that's the idea. It's aping the feelings and the ideas inside the lead's head. So for me, the film works because of its relatability. We've had, had all had trouble communicating with our parents. We all maybe had an interest in someone at school who didn't necessarily return the favour. We were maybe picked on for something that was out of our control. We had trouble concentrating at school because what's going on in our private lives. So for me, it works because it's funny, it's smart, it's very emotionally moving, and it's just extremely relatable. Wayne, you have perfectly summed that film up. I love this film. It is one of the great treasures of modern British cinema. And it kind of speaks to the spirit of ingenuity, what you, what you can do on a relatively small budget when you have the right people. Because everybody nails this. Yasmin Page as Jordana, Craig Roberts as Oliver. It all works. Richard, Richard Oyewadi. We are kind of, we, you know, we're sitting here, we're waiting on your next film. And then there's a plethora, a plethora of all these independent labels now. Somebody please fund the Richard Ayuadi film. And so that was episode 59 of In Film We Trust on Submarine. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned next time for episode 60. But for now, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week when we discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. 